Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. I'm Hussam. And I'm Guillaume. In this podcast, we are going through the fundamental concepts of corporate treasury, which I learned from my experience working at a big four consulting company. And you'll explain it in a way that someone like me who knows nothing about the topic can understand. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Guillaume. How are you doing? Hello, man. All good here. What about you? I'm very good. Hey, our podcast is really shaping up. Yeah, definitely. Quite happy about it. People are listening. Yeah. We've uh, even got some emails in. I don't know if I told you that. We did. People asking uh, about more information. Very good. And telling us how amazing we are. Actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Just that. Man, super really? nice. No, but so glad the, listen, the podcast is getting listened to. That's super cool. Um, we obviously hope people are learning, right? Yeah. That's the very purpose of this podcast. And yeah, happy to carry on. Well, let's do that. Let's continue. So we uh, have taken everyone through, and you've taken me through, uh, the foundations of corporate treasury, right? We broke yes. it down into the four pillars, cash and liquidity management, corporate finance, financial risk management, and banking relationships. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and you said something last time, which I asked you to go a little bit deeper on, and that's exactly what we're going to go do today, mm-hmm. which was uh, talk more about hedging, which yes. you talked under the financial risk management section. Indeed. Right? So you said there was two types of financial risk, man- financial risk potentially, uh, interest rates risk and uh, FX so risk. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and you said companies hedge against that. So can you explain that concept to us today? Yes. Um, absolutely, Hussam. So, yeah, um, today we're indeed going to go uh, and do a deep dive into hedging. Um, just quickly, a little disclaimer and a piece of advice uh, for the people listening. We highly recommend to listen to the full previous episode uh, with the four pillars of corporate treasury. If not, at least the financial risk management part, because this is really the root uh, of the episode of today. So there are indeed two main financial risks uh, in financial risk management. The foreign exchange risk, right? When you are trading in different currencies, there are fluctuations between those different currencies' rates and therefore a risk of losses. And interest rate risks. um, So obviously interest rates depend on many factors. Long story short, they vary over time. Okay, great. So we said we would go into why companies would want to even mitigate that risk in the first place. So what does that mean, mitigating risks? Yeah. Uh, and why would a company want to do that? Yes, that's a, a very good question. So let's start by the why indeed. So mitigating a risk is um, diminishing as much as possible the potential effect of a risk, right? Mm-hmm. So you do not decrease the risk, you just decrease the effect it will have if mm-hmm. it occurs. So now, a very good question on the why. Um, so corporations, companies are, um, and I'm going to state the obvious, in the business of making money, right? Yeah. So anything that makes them lose money uh, is something they want to avoid, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, um, something we didn't detail last time, but in financial risk, there is obviously the risk of losing money, but with every risk comes an opportunity as well. So they might also win some. Right. So explain that to me. So <clears throat> how that make uh, how that work in FX risk, right? So we said FX risk last time. You gave the example uh, of having a company in the US, and you said, okay, if the exchange rate goes the wrong way, you lose money. I understand that exactly. Um, but how do you earn money? Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, so, we indeed took the example of a French shoes manufacturer, as you very well described, having client in the United States. Um, let's take the same example as, as last time. The US client is going to pay us 120,000 US dollars in a month, uh, which is, at the moment we are contracting, worth uh, 100,000 euros. Well, so we agree on a contract for in one month to receive 120,000 USD, whatever happens. So now, if the US dollar loses value, I need more US dollars to have the equivalent of one euro, the 120,000 US dollars will be worth less when I receive them than when I contracted, right? So I'm losing money in that case. But it can also be that the US dollars goes up against euro. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that in one month, it can be that one US dollar will then bring me more euros than it does at the very moment we are contracting. And in this scenario, I will win money in a month because 120,000 US dollars will bring, let's say, 110,000 euros or 120,000 euros even, this kind of thing. And exchange rates, they overall stay pretty flat, right? Meaning mm -hmm. sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. And that's probably, it could go either way, right? It's a coin exactly. flip. Exactly. Of course, there are macroeconomic events, political mm -hmm. events that can push you one way or the other. Yeah. But it's 50-50 it's almost, right? So Very true. One thing I don't understand about all this, you mentioned earlier bank relationships and banks are involved in the hedging process and we mm -hmm. need to pay them money, etc. Mm -hmm. It all sounds pretty expensive and, and a lot of, there's a whole industry there that I don't understand why it exists. If it's 50-50, mm -hmm. you could go up, you could go down. On average, you'll stay flat. Yes. Right? So why do you need to put in the extra effort to have hedging mechanisms? Exactly. Man, this is very on point indeed. So it will obviously depends on many factors. But first of all, I'd like to say that some companies are actually taking the bet. Huh? Some company, mm -hmm. companies do that. They consider, okay, hedging is not for us. We do not want to either invest the effort nor the money. So we're just going to let the market flow and whatever happens. That exists. Um, now, indeed, most companies could think, okay, it's a 50-50, it's a gamble, let's take it, let's not bother. So this will highly depend on your risk appetite as a mm. corporate, right? Um, if you are willing to take risks with your business, with your money, it can like bring some fruits, definitely. So it's worth taking some time. But other companies uh, tend to go the other direction. So why is hedging important? There is a very fundamental principle for big corporations, um, which I think is important to break down here. What does a big multinational company want or even needs? Most of them, they need to grow, right? They need growth. Over the years, we always say, okay, we are growing yearly of that percentage of our turnover. They need to grow, ideally in a consistent manner, and preferably with expectable results. Now, most of those companies' leadership are not gamblers. They want certainty and predictability. Therefore, they will hedge themselves against risk of not earning as much or not enough money. Okay, so it's all about risk appetite. Exactly. Right? So yeah. uh, a company, companies that are known, let's say, as safe companies like Procter Gamble, or for other like, big companies that are known for that, mm -hmm. you know, the boring companies to invest in, as <laughs> is known, not the Teslas of the world. Yeah. You would say um, they're all about stability, they're low risk, they're more likely perhaps to hedge, 
heavily. Exactly. Um, yeah. As opposed to other companies which are a bit more wild cards. Okay, that's exactly. interesting. And that's <clears throat> that's what you said there, right? Predictability of growth. Mm-hmm. So if I assume then you're aiming for a 5% uh, growth yeah. in a company in your profits or in whatever else, revenues, then um, are you then risking not being able to go above that 5%? Just to secure that. So if I'm aiming 5%, I'm like, okay, I'm going to hedge everything for this 5%. Mm-hmm. Potentially even, uh, let's say, hedging myself out of gaining 10%. Right? Absolutely. But you secure the 5 Exactly. Exactly. So, again, that's very on point. And this is um, worked for all the parts of the business, right? Not only the corporate treasury aspect of it. We're going to focus on this today. But indeed, some companies, and again, it comes back to the risk appetite. So they might sacrifice between brackets, potential additional growth in order to secure the one they are targeting for. And this is especially the case of public companies, right? The one listed on the stock exchange. Why? Because they want investors to buy their shares or eventually want to buy their shares. Um, So in order to do so, they want their shares to be as highly valued as possible. And this is uh, particularly the case of public companies, uh, the one listed on stock exchange. Why? Because they want their value to be as high as possible to um, make the investors believe it's a good company to invest in, uh, compound this effect in having a higher value, etc. So they want investors to buy and exchange their shares. uh, And therefore, they want their shares to be as highly valued as possible. And they also want to distribute dividends, right? In a consistent, expectable manner. The key word here is reduce uncertainty and be predictable in the eyes of the world. So that's a really interesting perspective, right? So public traded companies where investors are watching them much more closely, Mm -hmm. they uh, release projections at the start of the fiscal year or the start of the quarter even. Exactly. Um, They're not so much measured on did they beat those predictions, but how well are they, how good are they at predicting their growth and sticking to it and therefore hedging becomes a really important financial metric then. Exactly. That's totally it. Yeah. Thanks. So I'd like you to take us through a little bit as well. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you protect against this? So we talked about the why and Mm -hmm. we talked about what hedging actually is. Yeah. How do you hedge yourself against those risks? And we said there was two types of risk, right? The FX and the interest rates. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's start with the FX, the foreign exchange rate, because you've already given us a very nice example on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Hussam, I know you're thrilled to know about all the complex financial instruments, right? But before that, I would like to propose a simple solution in order to protect ourselves against that risk. Um, so let's say that you're a business and you can have all your transactions, or at least as much as possible, in the currency of your choice. Let me explain this. So you, a company that is doing well, succeeding on its markets, and is becoming multi, a multinational. Therefore, you will have suppliers and clients that will use other currencies. You can say, okay, whatever transaction I'm doing, I'm sticking to the main one of mine. Let's say you're a French company or Belgian one. Your main currency is the euro. We also call it the functional currency or the reporting currency because your financial statements will be in euro. This is the reporting currency. But you can have a US client who wants to pay you in US dollars. but you was, And you will say, no, man, I'm only taking euros. So... I'm selling you 100,000 euros worth of products. In a month, I want 100,000 euros, no matter what. I don't want a few USDs. 
And therefore, your client has now a foreign exchange risk and you do not. So you could do the same for the suppliers as well. Okay, I'm buying you the leather to make my shoes, but I'm paying you only in euros. You will pay in your currency. What is happening here? You're basically only exchanging in euros, so you will never have a foreign exchange risk, but your suppliers and clients will. Clients will. So, I mean, that <clears throat> business is built on partnerships, right? Business is all about um, contracts, sure, and there's, you know, it's only business, mm -hmm. but relationships, partnerships, good faith is a very important part of it. Yeah. Um, to be in your middle of your supply chain between your suppliers and your customers, and then to demand everyone else to pay you in your currency, that's, that's a very idealistic world. You're winning in that scenario, right? Because they're carrying all the FX risk. Exactly. So um, why would anyone want to deal with you if you're just going around saying, no, I only take money in euros? Um, yeah. and, and how would you end up in that situation? So again, um, very true. And that was indeed um, an ideal scenario. Of course, it doesn't happen like this in um, real life, but it was in order to grasp where does it come from. Now, indeed, uh, you may not be able to convince all your suppliers and clients to pay you in the currency of your choice. It depends on multiple things. It's basically part of the negotiations, right? When you draft the contracts, you use whatever leverage you have. You negotiate on the price, on the date of delivery, delays, conditions, etc., and the currency. Um, so it will mostly depend on the size of the business, uh, the size of the business. Sorry, uh, the bigger you are, the bigger your leverage, obviously, uh, and it also depends on how bad you want to contract with that supplier of that client. But it, indeed, um, come along with it. Many problems, uh, a low flexibility. Um, you, as you very accurately said, uh, base your business on partnerships most of the time. So you want to arrange your clients because you want to make money, sell them. So you will arrange them. Um, and you may not have that much leverage on your suppliers, right? If you represent only a fraction of their business, they may say, okay, you either pay us in our currency or we don't deal. So that was one solution. Um, make sure you have as little as possible foreign currency transaction, but indeed there are many others. Okay, but well, so sounds like an ideal case. It'd be great if everyone, if your business could be like that, but that yes. comes at the expense of someone else. Indeed, and eventually you're going to end up on the part that's losing out. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing this is where hedging instruments really come in, which Absolutely. I keep asking you about. Okay. Um, because I'm all about how to make the banks more money. That's, that's exactly <laughs> I knew it. That's what's needed. That's my hidden agenda. <laughs> Poor banks. Um, so how would you hedge against the risks? Say you have to pay in your non-reporting currency. Yes. Uh, how would you hedge against those then exactly? Okay. So a promise is a promise. Let's deep dive into hedging. So we've defined hedging. Um, it can be seen as an investment to reduce financial risk. What you do when you're hedging yourself is basically you are taking an offsetting position to your exposure. What's in the living hell is that? So let's go back to our example of the shoes manufacturer, right? Um, I'm the shoe manufacturer, French one. Uh, my reporting currency is euro. I will receive those 120,000 US dollars in a month. Now, I'm not sure how much those US dollars will be worth in euro equivalent in one month. This is what we call an exposure it is uncertain what will become of those US dollars. Now, I need to find somebody who will agree to take my 120,000 US dollars in a month against a pre-agreed exchange rate in order for me to receive approximately 
100,000 euros. So I want to receive those 120,000 USD dollars from my client in a month. And I also want, at the very moment I will receive them, give them back to somebody else in a month as well. This is what we call having an offsetting position. I have an exposure in US dollar and I have an exposure in euro. So 120,000 US dollars will come in and 120,000 dollars will go out at that very moment. So I'm hedging my exposure by offsetting it with an opposite exposure. Does that make sense? So let me see if I understand that. You start a contract with a third party. Yes. Which carries part of your risk, right? Assume because they, yes. either you're paying them something for it mm -hmm. uh, or they believe it's going to go actually the other way. For instance. And they believe that uh, you don't know what you're doing and that they're going to win money out of it in the end as well. Right? Exactly. Could be the case, yeah. So you keep your transaction in your non-reporting currency, but you create another transaction for the non-reporting currency to your local currency at a predefined rate. Exactly, the one of today. With another customer or another partner of some sort. Yes. Um, and that's how you offset the risk. So you, in the end, have a fixed exchange rate. Exactly. pre-negotiated and you're like, okay, I'm happy with this exchange rate in mm -hmm. a month, regardless of what the financial markets do or the FX markets do, sorry. Yes. Uh, I'll be happy with this. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy with this exchange rate. Okay. Exactly. That's it. Um, so that's basically it. So it's like almost having insurance. Exactly. Right? So yeah. you would um, buy a house and then you get home insurance and you say, okay, there is the risk that my uh, roof breaks, for instance, for example. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, I'm going to get insurance. I'm going to definitely pay 50 euros a month, Yeah. for example. Yeah. Uh, but I'm happy to pay 50 euros a month versus the potential 2,000 euros to get my roof fixed. Exactly. Yeah, that's basically it. Hedging is basically taking an insurance. That's exactly it. Yeah. Okay, and how does that... So what's the insurance of the financial world then? Let's get to it. So um, we will receive those 120,000 US dollars worth 100,000 euros today. We want to make sure to have 100,000 euros in a month. That's we already set out of this transaction. So I need to take an offsetting position. I need to find somebody who will take those 120,000 US dollars in exchange of the pre-agreed rates exchange uh, with the euros. Now, we agree now, no matter what happens to the, to the US dollars. Now, of course, this comes with a fee, right? Uh, it comes at a price. We call it the fee. Uh, you do it with a financial institution able to trade this kind of products. And most of the case, those are banks. Now, the exposure is now the bank's one. You've transferred the risk to a third party. And this kind of contract that we just described in the last two or three minutes is called a forward or a future. Okay, so a future mm -hmm. is the contract of like a future price has already been agreed. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, I assume that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and you do pay a fee to the bank for this then. Absolutely. To create this contract. It's not just like, okay, we see where it goes. It's like a, let's say, a competition. Say, mm -hmm. okay, do I lose money? Do I win money? And the bank's thinking the same thing. They're actually charging a fee for it because at the end of the day, there is a risk associated with it for the bank. Exactly. Or financial institution. Yeah, well, there is both, actually. Huh? They might as well be speculating on top of that, saying, oh, wow, this guy is selling in a month 120,000 US dollars. 
I really think the USD will go up against Euro. Yeah. So I will not only make him pay a fee to yes. grant him this forward, yeah. I will also make money out of it. That can yes. be part of the mechanism. It is. Yeah. Or give you a lower fee because they think you're a sucker. <laughs> so that's, that's why we're presenting it. But indeed, banks adjust their prices depending on how they feel the market will go. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. So that you create a contract with them versus another bank. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's it. And what we just described and this kind of instrument is what we call a derivative. I want to introduce it today because that's a term that comes back a lot in the financial world and, of course, in foreign exchange risk management and more globally in treasury. Um, so yeah, it's basically a recurrent term that you will hear quite often in some way. So overall, what I've done is I've taken a contract for 120 USD, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll be paid in a month. Yes. I tell a bank, I'm like, hey, I'm going to get 120 US dollars mm -hmm. in a month. Mm -hmm. I don't know which way the exchange rate is going to go. Yeah. Will you take this 120 dollars in a month from me yes. and pay me 100 euros from this. Yes. Right? And then the bank goes, yeah, sure, but it's going to cost you. I'm going to charge you a fee exactly. for this. Uh, and this is the overall what we call derivatives and derivatives are include futures. And this is like a futures contract, right? Because it's exactly. a future price pre-negotiated. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But you just mentioned a fee. Like I need to, as a business, mm -hmm. um, account for additional costs. Yes. Right? This is yes. an additional cost on top of everything else I have to do. Uh, on that 120 USD, that 100 uh, euros, mm -hmm. I'll get less than that. So it'll decrease my profits overall, right? Absolutely. Indeed. So that's a fee. And again, you'll put your finger on something very important here. So this goes back to the risk appetite we just described before and the hedging policy of the company that will be for another episode. But indeed... In the 100 euros that you will be sure to receive in a month, there might be one euro or 1,000 euro that will go to the bank. But you'd rather lose that 1,000 euros for sure mm -hmm. than potentially lose way more. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we described at the beginning of this episode, the risk appetite, the predictability. You'd rather earn a little bit less than planned than to gamble it all. Yeah. So it's really a very risk-averse strategy, right? It's very much exactly. saying, I don't want anything to do with the exchange rate risks. I'm just all about shoes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens with these currencies fluctuating all around. Yeah. I'm willing to have know exactly what's going to happen in a month, predict my cash flow in the future, predict my uh, exact profits as closely as possible. Makes sense. Exactly. But that makes sense in a way, right? Uh, you're in the business of making shoes. You're in the business of selling shoes. You probably know close to nothing about the financial world, unless you have an extraordinary corporate treasurer on your team. But <laughs> Like our listeners. <laughs> definitely, or to be. But so the thing is, it's such a complex thing, affected by so many factors, that in the end, it's a very reasonable strategy to say, look, I'm not taking that risk. I will lose a little bit of my money that you can eventually impact in your price huh, at the mm -hmm. very beginning, because you know you will include it. You right. need to reach a certain margin, etc. But again, predictability. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So are there other instruments in derivatives other than forwards? So indeed, uh, there are multiple instruments. Forward is the most common one uh, because the easiest, the most, the most straightforward. Um, another one is what we call an option. This is the name of the derivative, the option. Um, it functions more or less the same as a, as a forward, except in that case, you can decide whether to exchange the currencies at the due date or not. What does it mean is, you're the shoe manufacturer. Again, this guy. 
Um, you have these 120,000 US dollars that are arriving in a month. You arrive at the end of the month and it occurs that now those dollars are not worth 100,000 euros anymore, but 200,000 euros, like huge bump. The dollars went up against euros like crazy. So you would make huge profit out of it. If you would have contracted a forward, you have no choice but to exchange those amount of money against the pre-agreed rates. So the bank is now making a huge amount of money. If you take an option, you can decide to keep the US dollars and trade them at their actual price. So, of course, the option comes at an extra price. Uh, we call it the premium. You pay the premium to have an option. Um, and there are other instruments such as non-deliverable forwards uh, for restricted currencies. We'll get to it in another episode. Uh, foreign exchange swaps, options with scholars, etc. But let's keep those fancy, complex words for another episode. What do you think about all this, Susan? Does it make sense? Is it clear for you? So I'm, I think the main thing I've taken away from all this, Guillaume, is that mm -hmm. um, all of this depends on, again, what you said right at the start, your risk appetite as a company. Absolutely. Right? So even deciding between a forward and an option, maybe you pay more fees when you have an option, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you have a higher risk with potential higher rewards. Exactly. Right? Um, versus uh, forward, for example, is just super straightforward, uh, super fixed it's in the and name. low risk, yeah. right? Um, but also low benefit. You don't reap any of the benefits in any case. Mm -hmm. uh, so it depends uh, what keeps you up at night. If that opportunity would have, <laughs> would have uh, keep you up at night, like, ah, oh, I could have made so much more money out of it. Exactly. But so, uh, again, that's a very valid point. Um, and let's quickly, like, rebound on this. It can become quite interesting for a company at some point. Let's mm -hmm. say you're like a hundred billion dollars companies in terms of turnover, like you, you're huge. The amounts of money we are talking about here are like thousands, hundreds, billions potentially of like what can be earned out of this. So you want to have an expert making sure you're hedging correctly, but also like making sure, okay, if really the exchange rate turns out to be in our favor, we want to have the option of buying it back. And then there is a whole financial world within the very company. It's really interesting. I think it is. So Guillaume, you've taken us through um, what is hedging and why we do it, mm -hmm. right? You've given us some very nice examples of how you apply it to FX risk, Yeah. right? So we talked about derivatives such as forwards and options. Yeah. Um, why you would pick one over the other is largely linked to your risk appetite, mm -hmm. which is seems to be the name of the game when it comes to hedging. Exactly. It's super interesting. Uh, tell us about the other one, the other financial risk, which is the interest rates and how do you manage that risk with hedging? Yeah, let's get to it. So interest rates implies many, many, many things. Um, let's focus only on the corporate treasury aspect of it, right? So corporate companies, um, in order to ensure the continuity of their business, sometimes have to contract loans or like get money out of a, a third party because they haven't made the sales yet or they do not have the cash available. Uh, that goes back to the liquidity aspect of it that we talked about in another episode. So corporates can have loans or bonds which are interest-bearing assets. Okay, I don't understand. Explain more. Okay, fair enough. So these corporates sometimes need 
certain amount of cash, right? To pay things. Um, money, they need money that they don't have yet from their sales. So they need to borrow it. Um, here comes the third party who will lend them money against a fee, against an interest. Let's take a very basic example. You, Hussam, you need 100 euros now. You need 100 euros now. Uh, it appears that I have 100 euros right here in my wallet. So I'm going to lend you those 100 euros. But I want to formalize it. So we're going to contract a loan. I'm lending you 100 euros and I will make you pay for it. Uh, let's say 5% of the interest, right? So whenever you will give me that money back, you will also give me an additional 5%, 5 euros in that case. So let's say in one week, you pay me back my 100 euros and you add the interest, 5 euros. The loan we contracted is an asset. You paid interest on it. So we call this an interest-bearing asset. Is it a little bit more clear? So this I understand, okay. right? That's how loans work. That's just it. But I don't see the risk with that. You said 5%. I mm -hmm. pay 5% in a week. Very fair. Very fair. So... Uh, this was a very basic example. Um, usually for individuals, most of the things we see is fixed interest rates, right? Uh, today, the mortgages, uh, the loan you take to buy your house is basically on a fixed rate. Uh, even if it's like over a super long period of time, 20, 25 years, 30 years. Now, for corporates, it's a bit different. Um, interest rates may vary. It's rare to have for corporates a very fixed rate. So, the absolute value of the interest a company may pay may vary, uh, in a good or bad way, again. Why is it a risk we want to mitigate? So, um, a company contracts a loan or a bond to finance something, right? Um, this something they finance, a project, let's say, a project, let's say uh, they expect some return on investment on it, the ROI. Uh, so the project is funded um, only if the return on investment is considered sufficient, high enough. If the company ends up paying much more interest than planned, so it's the whole return on investment that is affected, right? It turns out to be way lower. So you might have not gotten into that project in the first place if you knew you'd have such a low return on investment. Again, it all comes to predictability and risk appetite. So again, it can go both ways, right? Exactly. So when interest rates could go up, but they could also go down, yes. which means that you'll pay less interest on those, and that would be in your favor as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but again, like you said, I assume it comes back to um, your risk appetite. Exactly. Right? So are you willing to take the risk of the interest rate fluctuating or not? Mm -hmm. um, and it completely depends on that. If you care about how financial institutions decide their interest rates on yep. an ongoing basis in a variable way. So, Guillaume, in the last episode, we talked about um, interest rate risks. Yes. Right? We said, okay, you could have fixed interest rates, you could have variable interest rates. Mm -hmm. um, now, we already talked through the FX, right, the foreign exchange risks, and yes. you went to, took us through uh, how you mitigate those with your hedging. Yeah. How do you do that for interest rates, though? Yes. Um I know you like examples, Susan. I kind of like them as well. So let's have one here. And let's have one um, that we can all relate to. So, Susan, if you were to start your own business, what would it be? I would open my own cafe with the best penna chocolates <laughs> in the country. Love it, man. Sounds lovely. Um, you? Okay. Well, mm, I'd be in the same industry, but more of a restaurant. 
I think. Yeah, so we I'm, don't compete I'm, with each other. Exactly. So you can sell your pain au chocolat and I sell the best uh, crepes Belgian crepes. people have ever tasted. Um, what do you think about that? Sounds like a good idea. We can be next to each other. Let's do this. City Center of Brussels, does that work for Perfect. you? Perfect. Right, let's do this. So, lovely business plan. Um, we're going to make a lot of money out of it, but more importantly, we're going to live our passion, right? Um, so, in order to start our business, Hussam, uh, we both need a hundred thousand euro loan for some reasons like buy the stuff start the business hire some people um, getting you working capital management working etc so we both need a hundred thousand euro we're gonna contract a loan um, you have your cafe and the bank grants you a fixed rate loan of let's say five percent per period a period can be one month three months six months one year whatever five percent interest fix per period well for my restaurants um the bank is a little bit skeptical um they do not want to take too much risk uh, and they say okay we're gonna finance you we're gonna lend you a hundred thousand euros but you're gonna have a floating rate loan what does it mean uh, the bank is gonna tell me okay guillaume we lend you money at the condition of libor plus two percent per period what in the living hell is that again so so you say LIBOR? L-I-B-O-R. Exactly. What does that stand for? So LIBOR stands for London Interbank Offered Rates. Um, so it's a rate at which banks lend money to each other. Um, this is basically how much it costs the bank to lend money. Like, okay, I'm getting the money at this LIBOR rate, and then I will need to apply my margin on it, right? So we call this a benchmark interest rate. Again, that will be for another episode. But we wanted to introduce uh, the term of LIBOR here. Okay, so I pay 5% of the 100,000 that I borrowed uh, in every period, whether that's annually or monthly or whatever. Exactly. Um, so 5,000 euros. Exactly. Right? But you pay uh, for your restaurant LIBOR plus 2%. Yes. Which means... Okay, so let's take period one, right? Uh, period one... You're going to pay 5%. Fix. You pay 500, uh, sorry, 5,000 euros. Um, I pay LIBOR plus 2%. Um, let's say for this first period, uh, LIBOR is equal to 2%. That's the costs of money for the bank. So they say, okay, Guillaume, this period LIBOR was 2%. I'm adding my agreed 2% margin on it, which makes an interest rate of 4%. I need to pay for the loan of my restaurant 4,000 euros. So you win. You get to pay less than me. So I should have a variable rate as well. So in that case, indeed, I, I appear to have a better deal than you. Uh, but in period two, uh, LIBOR has fluctuated a bit. Um, the situation, the world economic situation has a little bit more uncertainty. Uh, banks tend to be a bit more careful. So let's say LIBOR is 5%, uh, to which, again, my bank is adding this 2% margin. So now I end up paying 7% of interest on my loan, which makes it 7,000 euros for that period. Um, and so on. It can vary every time. Okay, so I'm always sure. So I'm taking the low risk approach, which is I know it's 5% every period. Let's say that's every month or whatever. Yes. Um, I'm paying 5,000 every month, whereas you need to wait for the letter to come through the door to find out how much you need to pay. Exactly. And you carry that risk. Exactly. But you could win or you could lose. And, and, so. mm. and these LIBOR, these are like published? Yes, it's, it's public information. Everyone's yeah. aware of it and you can... And, and 
Do you know what affects those? What creates one to go up or down? So this is a bit too technical for me uh, at the moment, but uh, we'll keep it for another episode, Sam, with great pleasure. Yeah, thanks for challenging me. <laughs> so what if LIBOR goes off the rails? Like if it's like 10%, Yes. right? Then you're paying 12%, which is 12,000, Yes. right? Um, and I might or, as well go out of business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it goes to like 0.5%, mm. right? Yeah. And then you're paying almost nothing. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially compared to the fixed rate like this. Um, um, could go anywhere. Exactly. So again, it depends on my risk appetite, right? Um, I'm a small restaurant. Uh, what I tend to do is to be conservative, uh, not take too much risk. But I didn't have a choice. The bank uh, granted me a loan of a floating rate, uh, LIBOR plus 2%. Now, Hussan, I feel that you like risk. Um, and I hate it. I hate risk. Um, I want to be able to plan my budgets, uh, to have consistent, predictable growth. Um, I want it to be steady. So I'd rather go for a fixed loan, but that's not what I have. Now, you love risk, and yeah, in your mind, you think eventually the LIBOR will go down. So you'd earn money having not a fixed rate anymore, but a floating one that will eventually make you pay less than 5,000 euros per period. So knowing that, plus you're a very good friend, uh, we have our business next to each other, so we talk every morning um, around this awesome Tao Chocolat of yours. So I come and I propose you a deal. Um, look, Sam. I'm going to pay you 5,000 euros per period, no matter what happens. Um, those 5,000 euros are yours, and you can use them to repay your loan. Um, but in exchange, I would like you to pay me LIBOR plus 2%, no matter what. Uh, either LIBOR goes up, goes down. It's not my concern anymore. You like risk. You take it. Uh, and you might, I think it's a good deal for you, because I also think LIBOR will go down, but I, can, I cannot take the risk. So what we are doing here we are exchanging our interest rate payment condition. We do a swap. And a swap is the name of the instrument that is used for such situation. So, although we both have our individual contracts with our banks, mm -hmm. we can, between us, swap our contracts because we're different. You know, maybe people are buying lots of penna chocolates right mm -hmm. now. Exactly. Uh, and I'm willing to take the risks more now, yeah. right? Because... Yeah. I've listened to a great podcast about public treasure, <laughs> and I think I know a thing or two about what Libra's going to do. Excellent. Uh, so I decide, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to go back to my bank and adjust my contract because it's fixed over a period of time mm -hmm. and there's too much effort or whatever. But you're proposing me a swap. I think Libra's going to go down. I think it's a, I think it's a good deal for me. Okay. And awesome. then we would swap our contracts mm -hmm. between us, create a new one, uh, independent from the one that we have from the banks. Exactly. Um, based on our current needs as exactly. independent businesses. Yeah. So, exactly. So that's quite a basic example of how a swap works, but that's exactly it. Now, in the real life, you would have those swaps with the bank, again, with a financial institution, able to deal this kind of derivative again. Um, but indeed, that's the mechanism. That's exactly how it works. So, this reminds me of like... Um, the thing that I think in all my economics classes growing mm -hmm. up, I studied was always the 2007 mm -hmm. um, crash, right? Yes. And we're kind of giving away our age that we studied the 2007 Ouch. crash. Ouch. <laughs> as, opposed, <laughs> as opposed to lived it. Exactly. Uh, but that's, that's, I heard something like this, right? Interest rates went up. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. So everyone with a floating interest rate mm -hmm. had to pay a lot more. So all the borrowers all of a sudden had to pay a lot of money. Exactly. So uh, many things happened uh, during that crisis. Um, 
the interest rate, the floating interest rate were a thing, uh, not the only one that led to this crisis, but indeed, that's what triggered it in the first place. So the Fed, the Federal Bank of the United States, uh, at some point decided to change its um, economics policy, and they say, okay, we're going to raise up the interest rates. It ended up having increasing interest rates for all the borrowers of mortgage uh, who were able to buy houses uh, like this. And therefore, they were able to afford their loan anymore, which had uh, what we call a systemic effect uh, because of also uh, toxic projects, but that's for definitely another episode. But they did. Uh, floating rates were involved in those crisis uh, in those events during the crisis of 2008. Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting and relevant. It's good to know. So, Guillaume, is that everything for hedging for now? That's almost it. Um, I would like just quickly, Usam, to cover quickly a couple of other instruments for interest rates, just so our listeners have have them in mind. Um, So, swap is the most basic one when it comes to interest rates, either fixed or floating, or other kind of swaps, but... That's how it works. Um, you can, in those swaps, uh, introduce caps and floors. So basically, you get compensated for the rise of interest only if this one goes too up to the cap or to the ceiling, we call. Um, so it means you're willing to take a little bit of risk, but not too much. And it can work the other way around as well with, with floors, uh, like the opposite of a ceiling, basically. Then there is all those instruments uh, that we're not going to cover today, but CCIRS, which are cross-currency interest rate swaps, when you mix both foreign exchange risk and interest rate risk. Let's maybe not get into that today. <laughs> yes. um, and many other things. Kusam, is foreign exchange hedging and interest rates hedging more clear for you now? So you tell me. Let me explain it back to you from what I've taken away from this. Go for it. With my non-corporate finance background. So we... Set out to understand hedging, yes. right? Hedging is like an insurance that a company takes out against financial risks, yes. namely foreign exchange risks and interest rate risks. Exactly. Right? Why would a company do that? Because uh, maybe they're super risk adverse. They don't like risk. They're like, okay, I don't know what the financial markets are going to do with their interest rates, or mm-hmm. I don't know what the exchange rates are going to do when I'm trading internationally. So I want a third party to come in and help me offset this risk, give me insurance against this risk so that I don't need to worry about that. I can focus on my delicious pan of chocolates or exactly. I can focus on my shoes or mm-hmm. whatever else the example you gave, right? Absolutely. Some instruments for hedging mm-hmm. uh, on the foreign exchange rate side mm-hmm. uh, include derivatives such as futures, yes. which is pre-negotiating a future exchange rate price now. Exactly. right? Because that's an external risk almost, right? That's a risk that's um, in the macroeconomic sphere. Mm-hmm. So you go to a bank and say, hey, look, this is happening all around the world. Let's create a contract between us. Yes. Um, and then you gave other uh, examples as well mm-hmm. there, such as options. Yeah. Uh, this is also a forward. Yeah, but indeed, exactly. Indeed, yes. Uh, and then you went into interest rate risks, right? So mm-hmm. you can have a fixed rate loan or you could have a variable rate loan, exactly. right? Uh, a variable rate loan would be something linked to an instrument like LIBOR. Exactly. LIBOR a is benchmark. A yep. benchmark, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So the banks don't just come in and say, hey, today I feel like it's this. These are exactly. actual <laughs> rates that are uh, published and calculated due to some specific measures. Exactly. And uh, the bank says, okay, here's what it costs me to get this money. I'm mm-hmm. going to charge you 2% of top of what it costs me. Super yep. transparent. That's really nice. 
Kind that of, means no. you carry the risk and reward of the interest rate. Eventually. Yeah. Right? Versus a fixed rate, which would be uh, no risk or reward necessarily. Yes. You know what you're going to pay. It's kind of like dealing in your local currency in the FX side, right? Exactly. Example yeah. You make it. another party, a third party, carrying yeah. the risk. In, yeah. in this case, it's the bank carrying the LIBOR risk instead of you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But if you end up with a variable rate risk and you want to swap it out, mm-hmm. or if you end up with a fixed rate risk, but you're like, hey, I, I think... I think it's going to go in my favor yeah. and I have the, let's say, um, capacity to take this risk right now. Mm-hmm. You can do something like a swap where you go back to the bank or you go to your f- restaurateur next door exactly. uh, and say, let's swap. I want to swap contracts to someone else or to create a swap contract um, to then change that in a way. Right. Yeah. And that's how you can hedge your bets or hedge your um, interest rate risk yeah. as well. I never thought I would understand hedging so well. That was a very good recap, man. Well played. Thank you very much. Again, great sure. teacher. Uh, Guillaume, what are we going to talk about next episode? That's a very good question. Um, you kind of challenged me on Libor. Uh, I don't know if we're going to tackle this topic right now, but I'm definitely keeping it in mind uh, for very uh, near future episodes. Um, I think we'll go back a little bit more into the details of the four pillars, right? We covered them high level. I think it would be interesting to as we just did for hedging, for financial risk management, to also take one of the other pillars and break down how it works effectively, mechanically, the dynamic uh, within corporate treasury. What do you think about that? Looking forward to it, Kim. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you, Sam.